This is the Tribune Audio Network. For hundreds of years, witch hunts in Europe claimed thousands of victims. This frenzy reached the U.S. in 1629 when the Salem witch trials led to the execution of 20 people. And while we like to think fear of the occult is long behind us, that's not really the case. You're probably familiar with the film The Exorcist, but do you know it's based on a real case? On this episode of the Backstory Podcast, we look at the origins of these iconic stories of witches and demons. Let's get into the backstory. Religion, superstition, war, politics, disease, fear, all connected like a web of stress in 17th century New England, and Salem's caught in the middle. The more they struggle, the more dangerous their fate. Marilyn Roach is a leading expert on the witch trials. She's the author of several books, including Six Women of Salem. Everything seemed to be going wrong at the same time. In the 1970s, she pours over documents looking to track down Salem's hangman. She comes up empty, but the search leads to a discovery. She's looking at documents that may have been overlooked by historians. It's a slight time warp. You're in the same space, relatively speaking, as whoever wrote it. And that can be kind of interesting feeling. So you have politics, climate, war, Native Americans, and disease. And all this is going on, and meanwhile, people have panicked over the possibility of witches in their midst. Salem is 22 miles north of Boston. During the past few decades, it's evolved into a major tourist destination, especially in October. You don't have to go far to find a ghost tour, psychic shop, monster museum, or other tourist attractions rooted in the hunt for witches. But of course, there were no witches. Most tourists never see the true historical sites. There are some places the trolley won't travel, and other places that no longer exist, like the home of Reverend Paris, where it all begins. It's now called Danvers, and it's about six miles from Salem. Reverend Paris's daughter, Betty, and niece, Abigail, started acting strangely, screaming and convulsions. Dr. William Griggs couldn't find any physical reason, so he suggested witchcraft. Betty said the family slave Tatuba had been teaching them about the occult. But Roach says there's no hard evidence she was teaching the girls anything. Christians often dabbled in folk magic. So when I think of these people, I think of them as Puritan Christians, and I guess it might surprise people that these people are dabbling in this folk magic themselves. That was a surprise when I found out that people were using folk magic. It was considered scientific, which it wasn't. A neighbor of the Paris family has a solution, a witch cake. As instructed, Tatuba bakes a cake with the girl's urine and feeds it to the dog. Nothing changes. Other girls in town who visit the Paris home also begin acting odd. Could they also have been sick? I mean, I'm trying to wrap my head around why they'd suddenly, if they always did folk magic, why now are they suddenly having convulsions and so forth? They may have been sick from something. There probably were different reasons, but they're getting overexcited. And I think a lot of it was after it got started, psychological. But uh, 
three or four of the people who were afflicted actually died that year. So something was wrong with them. Psychologists call it mass hysteria or conversion disorder. If you're panicked and not breathing right, you're not getting the blood in your brain correctly. As the blood is not circulating properly, it, it interferes with your vision, beginning with the peripheral, so it can look like these shadowy things creeping up on you. And that would fuel the fear that the specter's out there. It's like a ghost of a person who's still alive. The town elders arrest Satuba. She denies everything at first, but she quickly realizes she needs to tell them what they want to hear. She tells stories about specters attacking people through Salem, which can sometimes mean just a dirty look. It was assumed that sight was a power that came out of your eyes into the world. That's what they assumed for centuries, but it was just common knowledge that it was eye beams going out, and therefore the witch could project some hurt through a dirty look. The accused are mostly women, but a diverse group, a beggar, a respected woman at church, and an eccentric woman named Bridget Bishop. People accuse Bishop's specter of biting and choking them. Actors recreate her arrest and trial. I'm innocent, good people, please. All these people here can attest to my good Christian nature. With no one to defend them in Salem's 17th century legal system, they are condemned to death. I am innocent. I know nothing of it. I've done no witchcraft. The trolley won't take you to Gallows Hill. It's behind a Walgreens near a soccer field, water tank, and a number of homes on this steep hill. It was once believed the hangings took place at the top. A few years ago, Roach helped a team of historians and archaeologists determine the hangings took place only halfway up the hill at Proctor's Ledge. Public executions are supposed to be public to teach a lesson. And you could teach them a lesson from the ledge a lot easier than going up to the top of the hill. Proctor's ledge was high enough to create a spectacle, a warning for others. At the bottom of the hill, a memorial for the 14 women and five men who are hanged. One man, Giles Corey, is crushed to death with stones for refusing to enter a plea. Then, a pivotal moment. Pastor George Burroughs shocks the crowd when he recites the Lord's Prayer, something that is supposed to be impossible for a witch. He's still hanged, but people start to have doubts. Governor Phipps puts a stop to the trials when those close to people in power are accused, including the governor's wife. This is Witch House, and it shouldn't be called Witch House. It should be called the Judge's House. In Salem, the tours will show you the Salem Witch House, the only home with direct ties to the witch trials. It's the home of Judge Jonathan Corwin. This is where they examine some people from the witchcraft trials. There's the Witch Museum and an old church, and the Witch Memorial to honor the victims who would have been refused Christian burials. There are 20 stones inscribed with victims' names, like Bridget Bishop and Giles Corey. Tourism director Kate Fox directs visitors to these more public places. They think it's a, a movie prop. People will often come and say, was this built for Hocus Pocus? Kate, so tell us what this is here. So this is the entrance to the Witch Trials Memorial, and uh, the threshold is inscribed with the final words of the victims during the trials. Uh, if I would confess, I should save my life. Oh, Lord, help me. I am innocent of such wickedness. 
God knows I am innocent. Salem's mix of old graveyards and occult shops can be confusing. Sometimes tourists have trouble distinguishing between real history and Halloween props. A lot of visitors don't understand the sanctity of this space, that it's a place to remember the victims, to reflect on what happened in 1692. If we can inform a fraction of our, our visitors who are coming just for the fun, the Halloween, the haunted houses, then I think we've done our job. And now, there are witches in Salem. The Wiccan movement starts in the early 20th century. It attracts followers like Terry Colgren. Her business is Artemisia Botanicals, where she sells herbs like cinnamon chips, black walnut leaves, and elderberries for what she says is nutrition and healing. You want to make sure that the herbs you get have integrity. Despite the dark history, she says for a witch, Salem is a place to enlighten people. We started talking to them. They were taught about the Salem Witch Trials. They didn't realize that there were hundreds of other trials in other cities and towns all over. I mean, where there was two people that met on a crossroad, one of them was gonna be blamed to be a witch. We don't have a devil. That's a Christian concept. What about Tituba? Not much is known. It's believed she came from South America through Barbados. Once a pivotal figure in the witch trials, she escapes the hangman and disappears from the historical record. Marilyn Roach still hasn't discovered the identity of the hangman, but he's hardly the worst villain in this chapter of history. Some accusers, like Ann Putnam, confess the error of their ways. She said that she was deluded by Satan. She was mistaken. For those falsely accused, their families try to clear their names. 300 years later, Massachusetts officially exonerates the victims, and yet from social issues to superstition, the ignorance of the witch trials still haunt the world today. There are lots of scary movies with monsters or guys jumping out of bushes with a chainsaw, and I suppose they could give anyone a scare, but that is not The Exorcist. Based on the novel, the film was released in 1973. Some consider it the most frightening horror film of all time. But did you know it's inspired by a real case 70 years ago? A psychologist obtained documents from the church investigation, and they give us a look into what really happened. At a time before technology can make anything happen on the big screen, The Exorcist brings Satan to life in a way that no 3D demon ever could. It strikes at the mysteries of our traditions and beliefs. You know what she did? In 1973, Dean Richards sees the movie at the Evergreen Park Theater. He's now WGN's entertainment reporter. All you're hearing are screams, people running out of the theater. People were having heart attacks. People, the, some theaters distributed uh, barf bags because people were getting nauseous at some of the images that they were seeing. I think it's the scariest movie of all time because it's based in our most basic core beliefs that we've had since we were kids. Before director William Friedkin makes The Exorcist film, he consults with psychologist Stanley Kripke. So William Friedkin and I had a very, very pleasant talk 
Krippner yeah. gives Friedkin two options. The first is to make a movie that includes a scientific perspective that leaves the conclusions of possession up to the viewer. But Friedkin chooses the second option, a movie that accepts that someone is literally possessed by Satan. If I do bad, is Satan going to get me? That's, I think, what really touches people so much with this movie and why it remains one of the scariest movies of all time, even though special effects have far eclipsed this movie. Krippner tells him this version may not win over the critics, but it'll make a fortune at the box office. The character in the novel and movie is a girl, but the real story is based on a case involving a 14-year-old boy in Mount Rainier, Maryland in 1949. Krippner's student, Dr. Sergio Rueda, is a psychologist at a hospital in Mexico. He says he spoke to the boy on the phone many years ago. He said, I don't recall anything. People tell me that this happened to me. Through his connections with Dr. Krippner and researchers at Duke University, Dr. Rueda obtains church documents as well as correspondence from the family's pastor related to that case. The story makes the Washington Post. Priest frees Mount Rainier boy held in devil's grip. The spiritual world is very attractive, you know. We, we want proof, we want to believe on that, that there's something beyond life, you know, that, that, that beyond death. The basic outline of the case inspires the novel and then the movie. But the church's report, called the Jesuit Report, reveals the details. This letter is from the family's Methodist pastor, Luther Miles Schultz, to Duke psychologist, Dr. J.B. Rhine. Chairs moved with him and one threw him out. His bed shook whenever he was in it. When he was in bed with me, mine vibrated. According to the Jesuit Report, the picture of Christ on the wall shook scratching sound under the floorboards. The family asks, is that you, Aunt Dorothy? The family believes deceased Aunt Dorothy is behind it all and that it has something to do with money. The family believes she had left money hidden in a box in the attic before she died. They conduct a seance to try and find it. It's not clear if they ever do. Aunt Dorothy had introduced the boy and his family to spiritualist practices like contacting the dead through a Ouija board. Initially, a doctor prescribed medication for epileptic seizures, but the parents will no longer bring him to doctors. As reports of strange things continue, the mother feels they're being punished for leaving the Catholic Church to convert to the Lutheran Church. They call a Catholic priest for help, and the exorcism begins. The process will last two months. Our Father, who art in heaven. In the exorcist movie, the words help me spontaneously appear on the girl's stomach, but in real life, it's far less dramatic. Lewis was written on the boy's ribs in deep red. The word Saturday was written plainly on the boy's hip. Another message was printed on the boy's chest, three and a half weeks. The mother interprets this as they have to go to St. Louis Saturday for three and a half weeks. Why would the demon be interested in such trivial situations, you know? Most of the writings take place while he was out of the sight of his parents. Trivial situations? The report reveals a potential explanation. The boy is bullied at school and doesn't want to go. Why St. Louis? Aunt Dorothy was from there and the family still has relatives there. The boy and his parents travel to St. Louis and report mysterious things continue to haunt them comb flew violently through the air and extinguished blessed candles. 
A Bible was thrown directly at the feet of the boy. The priest who performed the exorcism writes down all the events related to the family as if they were true, as if they were accurate. So they took like a crash course. And after the first night, they visited the home of the hunklers, you know. They didn't notice, they didn't watch, they didn't witness any phenomena whatsoever. The family believes a Catholic baptism will help their son. The Jesuit report states, after the baptism, the prayers of the exorcism were continued. The usual spitting, gyrating, cursing, and physical violence continued until 11.30 p.m. About three weeks later, the exorcism continues at Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis. The Jesuit report states, at 10.45 p.m., the boy was in a seizure but lay calm. A voice broke into the prayers. Satan, Satan, I am St. Michael and I command you, Satan and the other evil spirits to leave the body. Then there were the most violent contortions of the entire period of exorcism. Perhaps this was the fight to the finish. After several minutes of violence, the boy said, he's gone. The boy said he saw the devil standing in the cave. Dr. Zach Kordick says the medical field needs to be respectful of beliefs, but doctors should be consulted in the very beginning of a case. From a supernatural standpoint, uh, I didn't see a lot of discussion regarding what else this could be uh, attributable to. But there's different reasons that people can portray these symptoms. Sometimes it is for a you know, secondary gain, you know, a reason, and in his case, I just don't want to go to school. It could have been also, though, that it was more of a cry for help or a reach out for attention that he wasn't getting at home. In the movie, the girl levitates in dramatic fashion, but in real life, only one witness reports the boy seemed to levitate, but just two inches. They brought up, you know, the bed was moving, but then there was the consideration, well, the bed was on rollers. You know, it would be easily moved rather than a bed that was stationary on legs. They were trying to fit it into the hole that they needed to fit it into to support their theory of demonic possession. Do psychiatrists leave the door open for possession? <laughs> That's a difficult question. I, I, I don't think so. I mean, we try to work in a scientific realm where we want to be able to have some evidence or proof of what is happening. So while the mental health community doesn't support exorcisms, we want to be respectful and open to people's cultural beliefs and backgrounds to form rapport so that we can help them. Dr. Rueda's book is called Diabolical Possession and the Case Behind the Exorcist. 70 years later, fear of the unknown still motivates some people to believe they're caught in a supernatural struggle between good and evil. This exorcism story is far less dramatic than the movie, and when the family's backstory is examined closely, far less mysterious. Thanks for listening to Backstory. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute to subscribe to our podcast or leave a review. To watch our full coverage of this story and see some that didn't make it to the podcast, visit us online at WGNTV.com slash Backstory.
This has been a production of the Tribune Audio Network.